Welcome to the Crack Open a Classic podcast, the podcast where I read a chapter or two, an episode aloud, ask questions to help you think about the chapter, and open the world of classics to you. So grab a cup of coffee or tea, and let's jump into the chapter. Chapter 17, A Submarine Forest. At last we reached the edge of the forest, doubtless one of the most beautiful in Captain Nemo's immense domain. He considered it his own and maintained that he had the same rights to it that the first men, in the early days of creation, had to theirs. After all, who was there to question his possession of this underwater property? What other pioneer, bolder than he, could come, axe in hand, to chop down these gloomy brushwoods? The forest consisted of large tree-like plants, and as soon as we entered beneath its vast arcades, I was immediately struck by the strange manner in which the branches grew, something I had never seen before. None of the plants that carpeted the soil, none of the branches of the trees, crept or bent, nor did any extend outward horizontally. All grew straight up toward the surface. Every filament, every strip of vegetation, stood up rigid, like a stalk of iron, the fucus and the lianus grew in perpendicular lines, governed by the density of the element that produced them. Whenever I pushed the plant aside with my hands, they immediately resumed their former position. Here, indeed, was a kingdom of the vertical. I soon got used to this strange phenomenon and to the semi-darkness that surrounded us. The soil in the forest was strewn with sharp rocks difficult to avoid. The submarine flora seemed to me fairly complete, and even richer than that found in the Arctic or tropical zones, which are less prolific. However, for a few minutes I unconsciously confused the kingdoms, taking the zoophytes for hydrophytes and animals for plants. And who could have avoided that error? For the fauna and the flora were barely distinguishable in this world of the deep. I noticed that all the plants were attached to the soil by an almost imperceptible bond. Devoid of roots, they seemed not to require any nourishment from sand, soil, or pebble. All they required was a point of support, nothing else. These plants are self-propagated, and their existence depends entirely on the water that supports and nourishes them. Most of them do not sprout leaves, but sprout blades of various whimsical shapes, and their colors are limited to pink, carmine, green, olive, fawn, and brown. I had the opportunity to observe once more not the dried specimens I had studied on the Nautilus, but the fresh, living specimens in their native setting. I observed the patinae spreading out like the tail of a peacock, ready to catch the slightest breeze. Scarlet ceraminaceae, the luminaria, with their long edible shoots. The neriocystae, fern-shaped and rose-colored, which, when in bloom, may reach a height of 50 feet. Clusters of acetabula, whose stems grow bigger as they shoot upward, and many other plants of the deep sea, all without a flower. A strange and eerie world, a woody naturalist has observed, a world where the animals sprout flowers and the vegetables do not. Among these various shrubs, tall as trees and temperate zones, there were in the damp shadows masses of real bushes of living flowers, hedges of zoophytes on which blossomed meandrines, zebra-like with tortuous grooves, some yellow caryophyllae, grassy tufts of zoanthrae, and to complete the illusion, Fish flies flew from branch to branch like a swarm of hummingbirds, while yellow lepisachanthae, with bristling jaws and pointed scales, dactyloctorae and monocentridae, rose up under our feet like a flock of snipe. At about one o'clock, Captain Nemo gave the signal to halt. 
I was quite pleased. We stretched out under an arbor of alleray, whose long, thin blades stood up like arrows. I found this short rest delightful. The only thing that was lacking was the charm of conversation, but it was impossible to talk and impossible to answer. All I could do was to place my big copper headpiece near Conseil's head. I saw the good fellow's eyes shining with pleasure, and to show his satisfaction, he kept shaking his head within his shell in the most comic manner imaginable. Since we had been walking for about four hours, I was astonished by the fact that I did not feel particularly hungry. I did not know how to explain this condition of the stomach, but on the other hand, I felt an almost irresistible desire to sleep, which is what happens to all divers. My eyes soon began to close behind the thick pain, and I fell into a deep slumber, which I had so far been able to ward off only because I was walking. Captain Nemo and his stalwart companion had already stretched out on the clear water and gone to sleep. I was unable to tell how long I had remained in this state of oblivion, but when I woke up, it seemed to me that the sun was sinking toward the horizon. Captain Nemo had already gotten up, and I was beginning to stretch my limbs when an unexpected apparition caused me to rise to my feet quickly. A few steps away, a monstrous sea spider, three feet high, was peering at me with squinting eyes, ready to leap on me. Although my diver's suit was thick enough to protect me against the bites of this animal, I could not help recoiling in horror. At that moment, Conseil and the sailor from the Nautilus woke up. Captain Nemo pointed to the hideous crustacean. His companion immediately slew it with the butt of his gun. I saw the grisly legs of the monster writhing in horrible convulsions. This encounter made me think of even more fearsome animals that must haunt these dark depths, and it occurred to me that against them my diver's suit would be no protection. Up to then I had given no thought to this, but I resolved to be on my guard. I imagined, incidentally, that our halt marked the farthest point of our walk, but I was mistaken. For instead of returning to the Nautilus, Captain Nemo continued his daring excursion. The ground continued to slope downward, leading us to still greater depths. It must have been about three o'clock when we came to a narrow valley situated between sheer rocky walls more than 450 feet down. Thanks to the perfection of our apparatus, we had exceeded by nearly 300 feet the limit that nature seemed to have imposed upon man's underwater excursions. I said about 450 feet, although I had no instrument to determine this depth, but I knew that even in the clearest seas the rays of the sun cannot penetrate farther down. The darkness, therefore, became total, as was to be expected. Even ten paces away, no object was visible. I was thus groping my way forward when I suddenly saw a brilliant white light. Captain Nemo had just switched on his electric lamp. His companion did likewise, and Conseil and I followed their example. By turning a screw, I connected the coil with the spiral glass in my lantern, whereupon the sea lit up by our four lamps was illuminated for a hundred feet all around us. Captain Nemo continued to plunge into the dark depths of the forest in which trees were becoming rarer and rarer. I noticed that the vegetable life disappeared sooner than the animal life. The Pelagian plants were already abandoning the soil, which had become arid, and which a prodigious number of animals, zoophytes, articulata, mollusks, and fish, continued to populate densely. As I walked along, it occurred to me that the light from our Rumkorf lamps was bound to attract some of the inhabitants of these murky regions. However, if they approached us at all, they certainly kept too far away to be shot. Several times I saw Captain Nemo stop and raise his gun to his shoulder, then, after watching for a few moments, he would move on. 
Finally, at about four o'clock, the fascinating expedition came to an end. A massive wall of superb, impressive rocks rose before us. It was a heap of gigantic blocks. An enormous cliff of granite dotted the dark grottoes and no predictable means of ascent. It was the shore of the Isle of Crespo. We had struck land. Captain Nemo suddenly stopped. A signal from him made us halt, and although I was anxious to climb that wall, I had to stop. This was the spot where Captain Nemo's domains ended did not want to go any farther. Beyond that was that portion of the globe on which he must never more set foot. So we began our return. Captain Nemo resumed the leadership of his little troop and strode forward without hesitation. It seemed to me that we were not following the same route on our return to the Nautilus. The new path, which was very steep and very arduous, brought us much closer to the surface. However, this re-entry into the upper levels of the sea was not so sudden as to cause decompression to take place too rapidly. If this has happened, we may have suffered those internal injuries so fatal to divers. Soon, daylight returned and became stronger, and since the sun was already low on the horizon, its refracted rays again tinted various objects with a spectral halo. Thirty feet down, we were walking amid a shoal of little fish of all kinds, more numerous and more agile than the birds of the air, but no aquatic game worth shooting had yet appeared. At that moment, I saw the captain swiftly raise his weapon to his shoulder and aim at a moving object in the bushes. When he fired, I heard a slight hissing sound, and an animal fell stone dead a few steps away. It was a magnificent sea otter, an anhydrous, the only exclusively marine quadruped. It was five feet long and must have been very valuable, its skin chestnut brown above and silver beneath, which would have one of those beautiful furs so sought after on the Russian and Chinese markets. The fineness and luster of its coat were such that it could easily fetch a minimum price of 2,000 francs. I admired this curious mammal, with its round head, short ears, round eyes, white whiskers like those of a cat, webbed feet and nails, and a tufted tail. This valuable carnivore, hunted and tracked by fishermen, is becoming extremely rare and has taken refuge in the North Pacific, where it will probably soon become extinct. Captain Nemo's companion came and picked up the animal and slung it over his shoulder, and we went on our way. For an hour, we walked across a sandy plain which sometimes rose to within six feet of the surface. I could see our reflections upside down, right above our heads, where we were accompanied by a group of people identical to ourselves in their motions and gestures except they were walking along with their feet in the air and their heads on the ground. There was another effect to be noted. This was the passage of thick clouds which formed and vanished rapidly. However, when I observed these closely, I realized that these clouds were due to the varying depths of the water over a ground swell. I could even see the billows with their foamy white crests breaking and spreading above us. The shadows of large birds appeared overhead, skimming the surface of the sea. In this connection, I witnessed one of the finest shots ever to thrill the heart of a hunter. A massive bird, which was very clearly visible, came gliding toward us, and Captain Nemo's companion took aim at it and fired when it was only a few feet above the surface. The bird dropped like a stone, and it fell within a reach of the hunter, who picked it up. It was an albatross of the most beautiful kind, an admirable specimen of the Pelagian bird. This incident had not delayed our march, which continued for another two hours, first across sandy plains and then across fields of algae, where walking was rather slow. To tell the truth, I was about to collapse when I saw a light glimmer in the murky distance half a mile away. 
was the searchlight of the Nautilus. In 20 minutes' time, we ought to be on board, and then I should be able to breathe comfortably, for it seemed to me that my tank was now supplying me only with air, poor, and oxygen, but I was making my calculations without taking into account a meeting that was to lay us a bit. I was lagging about 20 paces behind when I suddenly saw Captain Nemo turn around and come toward me. With a violent push, he flung me to the ground, which his companion did the same to Conseil. At first, I could not make out the reason for this unexpected attack, but felt reassured by the fact that the captain was lying flat beside me and not moving. I was stretched out on the ground, sheltered by a bush of algae, when, raising my head slightly, I saw two huge forms pass by noisily, emitting phosphorescent gleams. My blood froze in my veins. I realized that these creatures were formidable sharks, two tentorious, terrible creatures, with enormous tails and a dull, glassy stare. They eject phosphorescent matter from holes situated around their muzzles. These were like monster fireflies capable of picking up a man and crushing him whole in their iron jaws. I don't know whether Conseil had been busy classifying them, but I observed their silvery bellies and their fearsome jaws bristling with teeth from a very unscientific point of view, more as a potential victim than as a naturalist. Fortunately, however, these voracious beasts did not see well, and they passed by without noticing us, barely touching us with their brownish fins. We'd escaped, by a miracle, a danger that was certainly greater than an encounter with a tiger in the jungle. Half an hour later, guided by the beam of light, we reached the Nautilus. The outer hatch had been left open, and Captain Nemo closed it as soon as we had entered the first chamber. Then he pressed a button, and I heard the pumps start up inside the ship. The water began its flow all around us. In a few moments, the chamber had been completely emptied. Then the inner door opened, and we stepped into the dressing room. There, we were stripped of our diving suits, not without some difficulty, and exhausted by fatigue and lack of sleep, I retired to my room full of wonder after our amazing excursions into the depths of the sea. Questions to consider after reading. Would you be able to take a nap on the ocean floor? In your opinion, is there a difference in the ground beneath our feet out of the ocean versus under the ocean? Why does Nemo go back to the Nautilus by a different route? What were the explorers actually hunting? Thank you for listening to today's chapter. If you would like to discuss the questions, follow me on the Crack Open a Classic podcast Instagram page and comment on today's chapter's post. If you like this podcast, please share it with others so we can get the word out about more classics. If you would like to suggest a book to be read, email me at crackopenaclassicpodcast at gmail.com. Check back tomorrow for the next chapter in this adventure.